So yeah, um, well, there was uh, there was never really planned to 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 also you know be be a, a active speaker. I I really felt very very comfortable just inviting uh, friends and colleagues from all, all over the world to talk about their research, sort of you know taking it in as I'm still in the process of um, working my through uh, my way through my own um, research. However, I think it was uh, fate. One of our speakers. Um, was just finishing his dissertation, uh, asked me to uh, postpone his uh, talk. And so I said, okay, well, let's just present what I have in store at the moment. And so this is my um, work in progress um, research, um, a brief part of it. And um, yeah, I'm, I wanna talk you through my perspective of uh, Tim uh, in a very general sense. And uh, then in the second part on the term of Hortem. So here's a brief overview of what I'm going to talk about. Um, start out with a, a discussion about the semantic field of Tim. The second part will be um, about the various um, sources and uh, connotations of Tim during the so-called Tibetan Empire and the Age of Fragmentation. And in my last uh, big block, I'm going to talk about the Sakya Mongol period, so mid 13th century to the mid 14th century, and uh, want to share with you my perspective of what constitutes Hortim, uh, wrapping up with a brief conclusion. Okay, get started. As uh, my dear teacher, uh, Per Sorensen, uh, always started his um, lectures with a proverb I shall follow his footsteps and give you one of the like most popular uh, proverbs in regards to Tim, which is uh, The royal Tim is heavy as a golden yoke. The religious Tim binds like a silken knot. As you can see, I left Tim here untranslated and um, want to go into various dictionaries and see what kind of you know, translations we have for the term. So Melvin Goldstein's dictionary um, on modern Tibetan gives us law or rule as a translation possibility. We can see it here in a compound word, Timgi Galoa, meaning a magistrate, or even Timgi Menchi Rigba, forensic medicine. We go back in time a little bit, 19th century's uh, Yeshke's dictionary um, gives um, plenty of um, translation possibilities. So we have right, custom, duty, precept, uh, decree, commandment. And maybe one last uh, from the Bavarian Academy of Sciences, the Dictionary of uh, Literary Tibetan. Uh, we can see the entry starts with Gesetzvorschrift, um, which is law or precept. And they work their way through um, Indian Tibetan uh, translation literature. Uh, here we have a righteous person, um, good conduct, or in this example, 14th century Teptamapo, Timgi Chawan Nam Ilatemurche. So Ilatemur uh, was in charge of government business. And in the 17th century, from Dieter Schuh's study on the uh, legal documents that he found, um, he even translates it as uh, monastic rules. So we have this abundant wealth of uh, translation possibilities uh, for, for Tim, just by looking at uh, some dictionary entries. And even the English term law um, 
has you know a plethora of um, different um, connotations. So it can be classified as a polythetic category. This is a term borrowed from Rodney Needham, and it describes phenomena which share a great many attributes. So rules, norm, implementation by judges, formulation by government, enforcement mechanisms, links with social order and justice, a jurisprudence. However, as Fernanda Perry states, none of uh, these examples have to be instantiated in every example of law. In more simple terms, law can be understood as an intellectual as well as a functional or administrative system. The question that I was asking myself is, so how much overlap is there between Tim and law, or at least our Western understanding of it? And I went back all the way to our first written sources into the Tibetan Empire, or shall we say the Pugia dynasty. Um, as many of you are um, aware, they started out in the seventh century as a um, like small uh, group who then enlarged the territory in all directions. Their self-designation Pe becoming Pe Tempo, Greater Tibet or the Tibetan Empire. In this map, uh, you can see the Tibetan Empire uh, at its largest extent. So here we have um, the red dot Lhasa to the south of it in the Yalong Valley. This is where it all began. And they spread out um, to the outer skirts of Mongolia, um, half of uh, nowadays China, even going into um, Persia. The expansion was supported by a complex administrative system for assimilation of these various peoples that they um, conquered and uh, also facilitated the demand for resources in soldiers in Texas to provide for this ongoing expansion. And um, regulations uh, were done through a bureaucratic system that was based on writing. So how do we know that? We have a few sources at our disposal. Um, we have the Old Tibetan Chronicle and the Old Tibetan Annals. We have stone and pillar inscriptions, and we have legal documents found in the cache of Dunhuang manuscripts and the Karosti manuscript from Mia, which were described and found by Oral Stein. And to uh, give you a brief geographical uh, location here, um, and also a caveat, shall I say, we have um, here next to Kotan, the area of Nia, and then uh, Dunhuang at um, the northern end of the Tibetan Empire, being also one of the way stations of the northern Silk Route. As you can see, these are the outskirts of the Tibetan Empire. So whatever evidence, whatever conclusions we may draw from these documents, we have to be a bit careful if we can actually um, apply all our findings um, to what was happening uh, in central Tibet at the time. Um, just some visual representation. Um, to the left is the first page of the Old Tibetan Annals. And in the middle, we have the Schölstele, which is in front of the Potala. And uh, here's a detail of the Eastern inscription, um, which um, talks about a minister's deeds and what he got in return. So uh, let's go into the um, sources themselves. The Old Tibetan Chronicle um, combines the, uh, the reign of Songs and Gampo uh, with the beginning of writing in Tibet. And uh, there was also a standardization and division of official ranks, punishments, law distribution, measurements, 
as well as the political and legislative system. Uh, to give you an example how this would look uh, in, in more practical terms, uh, Frederick Thomas has shown um, that cadastral surveys were conducted. Um, these are records of rights and land. And um, they recorded something like proceeding in a southern direction from Borgans land, reaches Juniper land of Togun Sengde with 100 asses, and as boundary of the two, a can with a manual token. Fence proceeding in a northern direction, reaches the sand desert, and this goes on and on and on. So you see, it's a very, it's a very uh, detailed, a very uh, dense um, record of what belongs to whom and what kind of um, assets and properties are on um, each owner's lands. The Altibetan Annals refine the first statement a little bit and state it's actually not. Songsengampo, who introduced these measures, but rather his successor, Monglen Mangzen. So here we see um, the temple, that is the emperor, and his minister, um, Gaard Songsen, convened a council, and they divided the populace into fierce, that is military, and tame civilians. And further on, they made the manuals for creating the great administration. And then the next year, uh, the minister Gatsongsen wrote the text of the laws. In the following um, chapters of the Tibetan Annals, we find the description of the organizing territories um, being described as making an administration. Uh, it was based on this manual uh, created by Gatsongsen and it served as a blueprint for Tibetan governance. What developed out of this um, first initial step was a division of central Tibet into the so-called four horns, the Rushi, in the 8th century. And these um, big administration units um, were organized into two parts, into military and civil, continuing this uh, initial tame and fierce. So on the military side, we have uh, the Tongde, which were overseen by a horn, um, official, uh, Rupen, and the agricultural areas or Yulde were headed by Yulpen, so a um, official of the um, of the area of the land who was in charge um, of one area, who then was supervised by Depen, who then was supervised by the minister of the interior. And I would say that this structure suggests a very tight hierarchy and a clear separation of tasks and responsibilities. The Rupen is in charge of anything uh, military, um, conscription, uh, provision, etc., and the other um, half is in charge of, you know, um, getting the provision, um, growing them, etc. And the apportionment of government power, um, I would argue, would prevent individuals from advancing within the system. A later source from the 13th century even gives a brief um, definition of Yulpen, who is defined as the Tim base, the Tim Gitzawa, uh, for the various social classes, literally keeping the high ones in check and protecting the low ones. And I would argue that he's a bearer of a social order and a representative of the emperor. And so consequently, at least in theory, 
uh, no interference in the emperor's tim was possible, thus ensuring the longevity of the empire. Um, we also have evidence from these uh, various manuscripts that I um, mentioned earlier, and they employ regulations and guidelines for all kinds of legal claims. Since a uh, few of those in the audience probably know many of those, I thought I'd give you a brief example of a less known one, which talks about the postal system that was in place during the empire. And it reads, should a sealed imperial letter be lost, either the official posted to the way station or the traveling messenger must return the way of the lost letter to the way station it passed through and investigate whether or not the letter was lost at the previous way station. When the returning messenger passes through the way station, they have to determine if the letter actually went through the station or not, and um, if it's actually true what the messenger says or not. If upon examination of the dates of the seals on the letter, something inappropriate appears, the messenger will forfeit his life. And it carries on a little bit more, going more into detail. That is the um, original, uh, it's called, um, classified as Paleo-Tibetan uh, 1290 in uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale de France. From other Dinhuan manuscripts, um, as Brendan Dodgson has already um, investigated, we have, you know, a law of murder, Tommy, Tim, law of guarantors, or law for theft. We can also see from these uh, law and legal documents a social stratification. So compensation payments and punishment were meted out according to rank and insignia. And as Fernando Piri already um, concluded, Tim in the Tibetan Empire were primarily part of the regal, uh, regular administration and legal procedures. However, the Tibetan Empire um, declined and how it all came, came about, we know a little about. However, it's not well attested in contemporary primary sources and most um, research drew on the post-imperial sources. So here's just a selection. Nyangla Nima Össer's religious history, Kepadeo um, religious history, and also Nelpa Pandita's flower garland. In these post-imperial sources, an almost unanimously conformed narrative developed that had been echoed by various writers. Uh, if we look at Nyangla uh, Nima Össer's uh, note, how this fragmentation of Tibet um, was brought about, it was due to the complacency of the last uh, imperial king Langdama, he describes the decay as follows. The Chötim that binds like a silken knot got untied. The golden yoke of the Gietim was broken. The grass rope that binds people together like stalks of wheat were cut. The son did not listen to his father, etc., etc. Tibet fragmented into individual pieces. So this also um, goes back to the um, opening proverb, which sort of identifies an ideal state. And this ideal state is associated with the empire. And here in this description, it um, basically says, due to the fact that the ideal state broke apart, everything else sort of you know, unfolded, eventually ending up in the fragmentation of Tibet into pieces. A century later, um, the flower garland summarizes the following events as, as such. Langdama acted as king. Since he did not know how to maintain the rule, he divided with Tsangma as his second, the royal family into two lines. And here it gets interesting. He split the entire sphere of power into Dötim, that is the upper Tim, and Metim, the lower Tim, or Western and Eastern. 
The silken curtain of the Chiltern was torn, the firm rope of the ruler was severed, the Tim Towers collapsed, the stone stele with the edicts on them toppled over. And even later sources um, compared this uh, split into upper and lower to being like a hat and being like boots. And in between, there's just fragments. Um, to give you sort of an interim conclusion here, post-imperial sources associate Tim with the empire itself, and thus primarily refer to the territory ruled by the emperor. Tim is used here more as an abstract umbrella term, and Tim appears to have been developed in these post-imperial sources as an underlying concept without which the cohesion of an entire kingdom cannot be ensured. This sort of reminded me a little of um, Gertrude Stein's um, famous poem, uh, Sacred Emily, and the line that probably most of you know, a rose is a rose is a rose, which says that when the romantics um, used the image or the word rose, they associated it with the plant. However, in later centuries, it sort of became an archetypical um, term that sort of entailed the whole idea, the whole um, beauty and um, um, yeah, uh, way, way of life of the romantics. And I think um, a similar thing happened here as well. So the question uh, is now, was there no law in Tibet after the fall of the empire? So we have learned from these sources that there was no emperor left to govern um, central Tibet and the royal lineage scattered to the east and to the west. And influential clans assumed the role of local rulers. Um, they also made use of um, the imperial land rights that, that they were um, bestowed. The once uh, powerful and expansionistic confederation of clans that um, constituted the Tibetan empire broke into pieces into petty strongholds and each of these strongholds had their own rules their own regulations they even had various measurements and so in one part you would have a shangel in some you have a zonkel varying between 11 kilograms and 18 kilograms you also needed to have sometimes a lamik or sort of like the permission to go from one stronghold to the other a bit of a, like a post-brexit vibe coming up and how these like local things were organized um, can be seen um, from an example of the uh, Niening um, area. So in the ninth century, at the end of the empire, um, the Gur clan and the Gya clan were allocated to a border area called uh, Niening, which is uh, situated to the southwest of Lhasa. And um, we find here that um, the Gö and the Gya had different um, responsibilities, different tasks. So the Yundak, the Gö, the patrons, they were entrusted uh, the upper, lower, and middle lands, and uh, all the subject of, of other minor clans, such as the De, uh, Kyung, etc. They also um, acted to all of them uh, as their chief, including even the uh, four monk communities. The um, Gya clan, who were in charge of um, the religious uh, duties, they um, had three customs, chaksul uh, sum, so to protect the land from harm by hail, either caused by black magic or due to weather phenomena, 
Um, they've been entrusted as the guarantors for the forceful gods and demons. Uh, so no harm should be done to fish, wild animals and foreigners, but rather support them. And third, to keep the temples built by the emperors in good shape and offer butter lamps. What I found quite interesting when I, when I came across this, um, this source was that this specific order, which sort of resembles a you know, social administrative order, is here described as a tradition um, or a custom, you know, a chaksul, and not as Tim, as we would maybe um, associate it with um, what we just learned of all those uh, responsibilities. And I would argue that these clans could not claim royal status and their words and actions did not have the same validity as Tim. The transition period uh, from the empire towards the age of fragmentation uh, was also um, described by many Tibetan historians as the um, transformation from the earlier dissemination, the mother of um, the uh, Buddhist teachings towards the Chida, the later dissemination of the teachings. And um, Kepa Deo uh, has a very specific view on this period, which is also known as the rekindling of the flame. And he said that since the Gietem, the royal Tim, had disintegrated, the fate of the people was hanging by a thread, the silken knot of the Jötem, or the religious Tim. And Mark Balotzawa, I think, is, is quite a good example. So he is, he is one of many um, charismatic um, people that have been invited by the Tibetans uh, to India or um, due to political circumstances would even flee from India towards Tibet because they were um, invited with open arms. And he accumulated a great deal of wealth as fees for performing rites and bestowing initiations. And the Blue Annals even state that Marpa appears to have continuously meditated on the ultimate essence, but in the eyes of ordinary people, he reared a family, quarreled with his countrymen, and only occupied himself with agriculture and building. Um, the newfound local political stability through these various, uh, various petty strongholds um, revived the shattered economy that was left by the uh, decline of the T uh, Tibetan Empire. And temples that were once uh, shut down um, reopened, and uh, even monasteries were newly built. They became centers for pilgrimage and trade. And the founding figures of the Tibetan Buddhist schools attracted pilgrims, new students, and commercial travelers alike. Kalyamamoto, uh, for instance, sees this as one of the main reasons for the cooperation between the clans and the religious leaders, just as we saw in the Nyining example. Um, he thinks that clans initially saw in the monastic network a rival power, um, but they became patrons um, of these new religious institutions because they exploited the newly acquired wealth of the monasteries by securing clan members a place in the spiritual hierarchy and the new monasteries fortified by merchant wealth and aristocratic prestige provided a concrete physical and social foundation. And so this whole period, the 10th to mid 13th century, um, is characteristic uh, is the union of a religious and secular authority in one person. Two examples uh, would be um, 
the various local attempts um, to restore imperial type law and order, or at least how these leaders envisioned it, by Halama Yeshe'e in the 11th century, um, who tried to create a new legal order in Western Tibet, and the temporal preeminence a century later of the Tsepa monk Lama Zhang over the Lhasa Valley. And to give you another example of how they understood Yetem, in one of the announcements by Lama Zhang, uh, we can read, addressed to all sentient beings who now come under my protection and who fall under the jurisdiction of my Yetem. So his prominent role at the interface between the golden age of the Tibetan empire and the Mongol uh, domination that we're gonna come to in a second, um, soon after his death was highlighted by one of his biographers, Tsepa Kumar Doje. He writes, in Tibet, during Lama Zhang's lifetime, the Tibetan king's Gyetim collapsed and the time of the Mongol Gyetim had not yet come and Tibet was in fragments. So that is my, my first block and I would now uh, want to share with you more details about my um, primary um, area of expertise and research, the 13th and 14th century, which was um, characterized by the Mongol domination over Tibet. Okay. So um, a few things before I continue. Uh, on the bottom of my PowerPoint, I put this little timeline for you. And so I have this like dual um, education in both Tibetan history and Mongol history. And I wouldn't expect uh, you all to you know know so so much so much uh, detail about the Mongol history. Therefore, I put all the um, emperors or people who were um, important for Tibetan history on the timeline, highlighting the ones um, that are um, active at the time that I'm talking about. Okay, so the Mongols come in the mid uh, 13th century. And in Taisito Chanju Gensen's uh, Gachem, um, or a Testament, we can read that during the time of the two, uncle and nephew, the Mongol authority began. So this is how I chose to translate Hor Tim, Hor being the then uh, designation for the Mongols, and Tim, I understand as authority. The Mongol Dota Nakpo acted as military commander and settled at the Rasog relay station. When Chenga Rinpoche, which was the then abbot of uh, the uh, Jigong uh, monastery, arrived at La Duntang, Commander Daughter had seized the Gompa Shakerinchen and began preparations for his execution. So the Gompa is the local um, counterpart in charge of everyday administration to the uh, religious authority of the Chenga Rinpoche. Um, the Chenga Rinpoche was the uncle to Shakerinchen, hence um, uncle and nephew in the first line. Because the Chenga had made an invocation to the goddess Tara, a rain of stones fell from the sky and Commander daughter said, monk, you're a good one. Then he paid Chenga Rinpoche his respects and bowed uh, to his, uh, his head to his feet. He offered him the Gompa's life and an accounting of the household of the settled populations of Pamoju and Digung. Tax payments and the acquiescence to the Mongols were accepted. Um, Leonard van der Geib already um, 
analyzed um, this very um, interesting uh, linguistic um, section here. And I just want to go over um, a few key things. So first, um, Pöschingo. In, in my translation here, uh, and also in accordance with uh, Leonard van der Kaip's uh, analysis, it's um, the settled population. And we even have some good evidence for that. So the foremost um, historical source for anything uh, Mongol for the 13th century would be the so-called secret history of the Mongols. And we can read in paragraph 203, um, Chinggis Khan ordering um, one of his um, attendants, divide up all the subject people and apportion them to our mother, to us, to our younger brothers and sons, according to the name of the people. That is whether they have a nomadic or a settled or agricultural lifestyle. Splitting up those that live in felt walled tents, separating those that live in dwellings with wooden doors. So I think that is um, um, what Pöschingo here refers to. Furthermore, writing in a blue script register all decisions about the distribution and about the judicial matters of the entire population, make it into a book. I would say we again uh, see the Mongolian version of the cadastral survey that was so important um, in the Tibetan Empire. Thomas Elson, um, who's the foremost expert on the Mongol imperialism, um, also um, concludes that census taking was the key to Mongol efforts to mobilize the human and financial resources of the sedentary uh, regions of the empire. The object of the registration was to facilitate the assessment of taxes, to identify skilled craftsmen and technicians, and to recruit military personnel. All in line to support the growing Mongol empire and their expansions. The second one is uh, Pablang, which I would translate as um, tax payments were settled. And in the um, 17th century uh, history of Tibet by the fifth Dalai Lama, he also picks up on this uh, story from Taisito and he writes, Pablang. So um, all those with the um, Tibet wooden door um, the vast majority of those, they had to be uh, taxed. The last one is Motache. Uh, so uh, Leonard van der Kaip suggested submission to the Mongols. Um, however, in a more recent study, uh, Jingpa Pönsang um, renders it as acquiescence or appeasement, referring to existing alternatives such as Ngotakpa or Gurpa for submission or surrender. I haven't really made up my mind 100% yet. This is just something that I wanted to throw out here, maybe for later discussion. Um, a brief um, mention on the Mongolian um, side of things during this uh, period. So um, each new conquest uh, started with Genghis Khan and then you know, uh, continuing on, was followed by a modification of its administration, mostly through impromptu ordered um, issued by Chinggis Khan. Mongol studies um, sort of doubt the existence of a written legal text from this period, which is usually uh, called the Jasak, or um, in Tibetan sources, just Jasa. The general consensus of all these studies seems to be that it was probably a collection of these ad hoc orders. However, nobody really knows whether it was written down or just passed on orally. 
So only after his uh, successor, Ögede Khan, um, who came to understand better ways of profiting from the sedentary agricultural and commercial people his father had uh, conquered, could they start this exploitation more um, strictly. Again, the secret history of the Mongols um, states, sitting now on the throne made ready by our father, the Khan, so that people do not suffer. Every year from these people, one two-year-old sheep out of every flock shall be given as a levy for our soup, or I would understand it as a provision. Um, also, a brief note on the Mongolian self-understanding um, that there's only one supreme god, that is the eternal blue sky, heaven, Tingri. And um, due to this um, belief or due to this um, conception, it follows that there can only be one supreme ruler on earth to whom all other rulers are required to submit and pay tribute. The residual sources and Chinese chronicles have described um, this as the six duties, um, these um, um, de demands that uh, the Mongols uh, saw appropriate due to the fact that they were the only ruler on earth and everybody else had to um, submit to their authority. So I would say what we, what we can see here is Hortim. We have a few surviving edicts from other parts of the empire and my preliminary um, observa observation is that Tibet, especially in the beginning of the Mongol Empire, um, wasn't treated any different than other parts that were uh, subsumed, such as Goyo, which would be now uh, modern-day Korea, or Annam, uh, modern-day Vietnam. This also applies to Armenia, to Russia, uh, Persia, etc. And in this edict um, to Annam, we can read, holy command of our grand progenitor, the emperor, Chinggis Khan, from the kingdoms which submit to our authority, the ruler has to come personally to court. Sons and younger brothers should be sent as hostages. A census should be organized. Troops should be provided. Taxes should be collected. Moreover, a darugachi um, should be established to administer the territory. To fulfill this uh, list shows the profound righteousness of those who submit to our authority. And Thomas Elson also um, recognized in these two edicts a basic blueprint of the method of controlling and exploiting the sedentary population of the empire. Um, what is a darugachi? Uh, Secret history of the Mongols uh, defines it as a resident commissioner. And what is quite interesting in this uh, section is that um, Chinggis Khan wouldn't really know how to um, how to deal with, with, with conquered cities due to the fact that they were nomads and they wouldn't know the laws and the customs of cities. And so he was adequ adequately informed um, to these customs and then appointed the people um, who he saw fit and were adept in the laws and customs of cities uh, alongside a Mongol darugachi or a resident commissioner. So these demands also apply to Tibet, however, the ruler, the king of Tibet, who would that be? Um, as we saw in the Taisitu um, quote earlier, it was the Chenga Rinpoche, Chenga Jakpa Jungé, who uh, was first approached um, by the Mongols. In a later source, it was suggested that he himself should go, 
However, he he uh, didn't really want to, or whatever his his reasons were, but suggested the Sakya Panita instead. And so we have further evidence from uh, some of the letters. We have a gift accompanying letter describing the immense power of the Mongols and announces that envoys have already uh, been sent on their way to Sakya, carrying an official order. I think this is um, the so-called invitation of the Sakya Pandita that is uh, attested in later sources. Just check the time, okay. Um, the Chang'e mentioned the steady and increasing power of the Mongols in a second letter and urges Sakya Panita to go to the border area and start negotiation. He reminds him that there's this looming threat that he and his monastic community will be killed by the Mongols if they do not comply. And so Sakya Panita had to lobby, seek approval from various dignitaries in central Tibet because there was no one who could claim Tim. Nobody could, could claim like Tibetan authority. And so in another letter um, by Kadampa Chim uh, Napkajak, who uh, posed a few questions why the Sakya Panita should be um, selected, we can read first question, what qualities of realization do you possess? And then is there any beneficial reasons for your going to the Mongols? So that is definitely a question of like, are you old enough to do that? Um, as Per Sorensen in his uh, monumental work, um, Rulers of the Celestial Plains um, already concluded, we have equal and largely autonomous regional polities. And I quote, in an epoch bereft of a stable or durable centralized authority. So the political orientation therefore was quintessentially decentralistic. Um, the following events we can read from uh, Musepa's uh, genealogy of the Sakyas, um, which even says that Lord, Lord uh, Kötten, who is the um, Mongol authority to the, Tibets, uh, to the Tibetans at the time, uh, wanted a representative in Tibet and invited the good Lama to come. He then withdrew the army and said, to bring Tibet under our control, we need to fill it with hundreds of Tibetans loyal to us. Sakya Panita was uh, uh, sent on his way and took his two nephews, which served also as hostages, with him. And in his 65th year, he arrived in the uh, nowadays uh, Langzhou or uh, Zhangyu and met with the prince, uh, the Mongol prince in, in, the, in the following year, who then said, bringing your two nephews with you shows great trust in us. And Lord Curtin was pleased. Um, let me just uh, skip over this because of time restraints. Uh, da, 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 da. Let me see. Okay. Right. So um, just to just to uh, skip forward a little bit, um, negotiations were placed. Sakya Pandita uh, did did not return um, to Tibet, unfortunately, but his uh, two nephews. Uh, Pakpa Lama and um, Chagna Dorje, they were sent um, to the Mongol court and then later dispatched to Tibet. And they were acting as um, officials um, of the Mongol Empire to uh, rule in um, Tibet. And so a lot of measures were introduced. And in the, in the following years, a lot of um, you know, reorganization took place. And the initial Rushi layout, I would uh, argue, was adapted also by the Mongols and uh, various Mongol princes were um, 
uh, appointed uh, to be um, like appanage holders to the various um, uh, districts. And so here we have a letter by Tokdupa uh, from the Pamodupa, um, who writes to Kubelai Khan uh, that he has shown favor to all their envoys. Um, for this, all of our teachers are in your debt. On our part two, we shall make aspiration prayers for all the royal line on the Mongol side. To the best of our abilities, we shall hold an honest mentality towards your authority. Um, however, as he uh, goes on in his, in, his, in his letter, that all these new measures that were introduced uh, to uh, Tibet uh, wasn't to his satisfaction, and especially the cadastral survey, which established borders, um, wasn't to his liking, and he thought that his neighbors uh, would have gotten the bigger share. So he requests to transfer one of the taxable households in, uh, under his supervision. And he then says, if the request is found unreasonable, then this school of ours will have a large name, but a small body. We will not keep up with our counterpart and appear not to be capable. And then we can see there's a, there's a, there's a real rise in, in, in um, confirmation letters, in, in, in edicts that are now introduced as a consequence of the Mongol authority. So Pakba here um, is writing at the behest of the emperor, um, reminds um, exemptions that were granted to the monks throughout the whole Mongol empire and the um, document is followed by a lot of border settlement details. So here's just a few. So um, all of these um, lands, areas, estates, and monasteries, no one shall take away any of these or drive away the owners, nor shall they do a single thing that amounts to a contestation. This is the original photograph by Dieter Schuh. Um, so legal documents is something that now become more important and with the result of the census of um, the uh, 1260s, new official posts were installed, such as the post of the Myriarch or the Chipan. And they were also um, establishing new measurements. So the census uh, used the Hortu as the uh, like basic text unit. Um, here are a few details what a Hortu consists of. And it also had to have a strip of land sufficient for sowing 12 bushels of Mongol seed. So that is a new measurement. Um, what was also important, as we can see from the 15th century uh, genealogy of the Zhang and the Hlodakbo, since it was necessary that one coat out to the Mongol Empire, the lot fell on the line of uh, Chukbu Gangawa. As he had neither a son nor a nephew, he planned to go to China himself. And another source, the clear mirror of royal genealogies and other Tibetan archives from the 15th century, possibly, uh, we can read that even in the uh, 1280s, um, the Penchen Gadepel from Tselpa was appointed as a ruler and took over from his father by the age of 18, had to go to the Mongol lands to get everything confirmed. And um, it is reported that he received a lot of presents, as well as an edict acknowledging all taxable households from previous times. He returned to Tibet and had control over the kingdom. However, uh, as it goes on in the source, the abbot of Tsel would not give up his households and Gadepel sent word to China. Then the manager of the Simpuri temple in Yu would not give up his households. Gadepel uh, sent word to China. 
Yama and Digong wouldn't give up. He sent word to China again. And then La and Duk wouldn't give up their households and Gadipa sent word to China. He finally received all households and ruled over them. Um, what I th uh, think is, is, uh, is coming out here, hopefully, is that there's a rise of legality. It means that the Mongol authority has to be acknowledged and all these new measurements, especially the edicts, which are from the Mongolian side called Jasak in the, on the Tibetan side called Jasa, um, become more and more important. However, the processes of how these were you know, interpreted and adapt, uh, adopted within central Tibet is a whole different story that I hope to um, shed more light on in my continuing research. Um, since we're a bit short on time, uh, just give you a brief conclusion. So I would say that the Tibetan Empire, Tim, are precepts for military and social order. They include land rights, taxation, legal text, uh, including sanctions. We have a single ruler or emperor. Um, the age of fragmentation has no Tim, according to the sources. That means there's no single ruler. We don't have unitary measures or regulations, etc. We have local but short-lived advances in Western Tibet and the Thassa Valley. Again, in the 13th century, we have Tim again. This time it's Hortim, it's the Mongol Tim. We, can, we have a military superstructure, we have edicts and documents for land rights, taxation measurements, and uh, other legalistic measures, such as the confirmation of office or tax uh, exemptions. And we have a single Mongolian emperor. Okay.